I was asked a question recently that got me to thinking. The question is, after we become Christians, what are our objectives? After we become Christians, what are our objectives? What does God expect of Christians? As I thought about that question, and I appreciated it very much, I thought, well, we need to go to the gospel accounts and read uh, what Jesus said to his disciples. You're my disciples, for example, if you have love for one another and, and so many other things that he said. But we also need to go to the book of Acts to see how the early Christians who were guided by the Spirit-inspired apostles under their direction, what, did, what were they told and what did they do in response? And then I thought, well, we really need then to go to the epistles to see how the apostles and other inspired writers wrote to uh, congregations and to individuals uh, instructing them on how to live uh, the Christian life. So it's really a, a big answer. Um, but reference was made particularly to some things that Peter wrote in 2 Peter. And so I'd like for us to consider this question. I phrased it this way, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? In the book of 2 Peter, there's a similar question that, that's asked. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, after Peter has talked about uh, how the, the, the world and the elements of it will be burned up, he poses this question. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? If, if this is what's going to happen... How then shall we live? What kind of people should we be? So I want to take this question. What, what does God expect of us? What are our objectives as Christians? How then shall we live? And I want to invite you to study with me for a few, for a few uh, sermon times on the book of 2 Peter specifically. So I invite you to open your Bibles or look up in your, on your device 2 Peter chapter 1. And the first thing I think we find here is what God expects of us, and if we're going to live the Christian life, is to depend on what God has done. Depend on what God has done. See if that doesn't come out as we study these first few verses. It begins like this. Simon Peter, a bondservant or a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whenever I read that phrase in verse 1, I think about Ernie Smith. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Brother Ernie, if you didn't know him, served as one of our, the late Brother Ernie, served as one of our shepherds for many, many years. And he would get up just like I did this evening and make announce, announcements. The only thing is he was very prompt at 6 p.m., no matter what was going on in the auditorium or out in the foyer, he got up and made announcements. And he would begin by saying, it is, it is good to come together with those of like precious faith to worship God. And he would proceed with the announcements as some of us were, were coming in. But I'll always love that memory of Brother Ernie. And I appreciated his wording. And this is where... The origin of that wording. To those who have obtained 
like precious faith with us. With us. Peter is saying with us, with the apostles. The faith of the apostles was the same kind as those of his readers. What's interesting is is Peter uses the word obtained or received. And at face value, it may seem like faith is a gift of God. But I like these comments that I found. There's no implication in the words that in the words received of faith that Peter understood his readers to have been passive recipients of faith. Christians receive faith when they hear the message of Christ, believe it, and put their trust in the Lord. Faith is not a miraculously infused gift from God. It is the result of a choice that one makes when presented with the gospel. To me, here is a gift from God regarding our faith. The opportunity to have faith is a gift from God. The opportunity to hear the, the good news of Jesus. The opportunity to examine the evidence that we have for not only the existence of Jesus, but his, his, the nature of Jesus, who he was and what he did and what he has promised us. All of those things are, and, and the opportunity for us to respond in faith to what Jesus has done. These are gifts from God. But notice also that Peter describes this faith as precious. This like precious faith. That word is used several times in the books of First and Second Peter. In fact, I enjoyed doing a lesson on precious things in Peter. There are certain things, in fact, we'll see another one in our text, that Peter uses this word to describe, precious. Here it's precious faith. And that word precious means, refers to something valuable. It denotes an extremely valuable treasure. And faith is certainly a valuable treasure that we have. Because with our faith, it is precious because it brings hope, it brings salvation, it brings peace, security, and a host of other spiritual blessings. And our like faith, Peter is telling us, enables us to be united in the family of God. What a great blessing. A like precious faith. We share a common faith in Jesus, a common faith in God. And that unites us together within the family of God. Ephesians 2.19 says, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, or members of God's family. Contextually, he's writing to Gentiles who are on the outside looking in as far as the people of God. But in Christ, both Jew and Gentile could be made one, one family. And they can share in that like, precious faith. Folks, that is a blessing from God. That is what God has enabled for us to participate in. And if we're going to, what does God expect of us but to depend upon these blessings that he has given us? But notice Peter goes on to say, referring to this faith, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Righteousness or justice. 
We look at the scriptures and we understand that to be justified, to be cleansed of our sin, to be made righteous is made possible because of the vicarious atonement of Jesus. Because Jesus died for our sins. When we obey the gospel, we are counted as righteous in the sight of God. But here, Peter may be referring to the, the just and right ways of God. How God had, had fulfilled the promises that he made concerning the coming Messiah. And all those had been realized. He'd been faithful to his promises. And his justice and his love were both demonstrated through the gift of Jesus. His justice was satisfied by Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. But at the same time, the love of God was displayed when Jesus died for our sins. Notice verse 2 with me. It's a prayer that Peter gives for these saints. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. A prayer. A prayer for grace. Grace. Unmerited favor is the classic definition. Something that we need but don't deserve. Um, and that's what we receive in Jesus. Grace and peace. That is not enmity but harmony and tranquility. Through Jesus we have peace with God. But we also are able to experience that peace within. That, that peace of God which surpasses all understanding. But his prayer, notice this, grace and peace be multiplied to you. May it continue to overflow in, in your life. May it continue to, to increase. And it reminds us that God continues to bless us with these great blessings of grace and peace through Christ. He gives continually. And when I, when I read that phrase, he gives continually. My mind went to Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Peter's prayer for these Christians is again that they would understand how God had blessed them with grace and peace. And he prayed that it would continue to overflow in their, in their lives. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Knowledge is a key word in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Lord willing, we'll see how Peter is warning these Christians about false teachers, about their ways and and exactly what they teach is not spelled out, but we can gather, we can gather clues from how he describes their, their motives and their manner. But apparently these false teachers were claiming to have greater knowledge. And so Peter doesn't back away from that. He speaks about true knowledge. And the reason that grace and peace can be multiplied in the lives of Christians and the life of, of God's people is through this having this proper knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Full knowledge. The knowledge of Jesus Christ alone brings the grace men need and the peace for which their hearts 
crave. And I think verse 3, speaking of knowledge, uh, informs us where we get that proper knowledge. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Again, what does God expect of us? He wants us to depend on what He has given us. What else has He given us besides this this opportunity to have faith in Him and and to be righteous in His sight through Jesus, to have grace and, and peace? Well, He has given us knowledge, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Life means that life with God. It refers to the spiritual, intangible benefits that we Christians enjoy. He's given us all the knowledge that we need in order to have that life with God. Not only that, He's given us all the knowledge that we need to live godly lives, to live in a godly manner, which is really where this question originates. How then shall we live? The the answer is, God has given us everything that we need in order to live a godly life, to know how we should live. Where does that information come from? This knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus. That knowledge came through revelation, through Peter and other inspired uh, writers. It reminded me of 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything that we need to know about how to live, what God expects, he's provided it for us through through his word. And we also have God's help. To, to do His will. He has promised, again, as we quoted uh, last week, Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God helps us when we are seeking to obey His will. He, he helps us as we do so. But it, we read one more verse, verse 4. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious Promises. There's that word precious again. Valuable. Treasure are these promises that we have. Exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through, through lust. You see, not only has God given us all these blessings that Peter has referred to, but he has given us these promises, these precious promises. And again, he's encouraging us to rely, to depend on what God has given, to stand in those things, and that will propel us to live the kind of life that he's called us to live. These promises could refer to Promises made through the Old Testament about the Messiah and what Jesus would accomplish. It can also refer to the promises made by Christ for the reassurance of His disciples. What are those precious promises? Coy Roper uh, wrote an article 
and he listed some. There's 10 of them, but I'll be quick. But these are just a sampling of the precious promises that we have because of Jesus. Number one, we have the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, verse 38. We are the children of God. Behold what love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. 1 John 3, verse 1. We have the promise that Christ is our Savior, our mediator, our high priest, our advocate. 1 John 2, verse 1. We have the privilege of prayer. Knowing that God is our Father, we can speak to Him, carry our concerns, our praise, but also our concerns to Him. That's a privilege of the child of God. And He's promised to hear and answer our prayers. We have the promise of God's providence. Amazing thing, God's providence. Paul expressed it. and We know that all things work together for good for those who, who love God and are the called according to His purpose. Number six, we have the assurance that we'll never be tempted above what we are able to bear. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. I like to make sure we understand that we'll never be tempted above what we are able to bear with God's help. We need God's help in order to overcome a temptation. We have, number seven, the Word of God to build us up. Number eight, we have the church to provide for us an environment for spiritual growth. We have a family to help us, and we are to help one another. We have Christ's blood to continue to cleanse us, 1 John 1 in verse 7. And finally, we have the hope of heaven. That's not exhaustive, but just with that list alone, aren't these exceedingly great and precious promises that's where Peter begins he's writing to Christians encouraging them to continue to to follow after Jesus and not to be influenced by false teachers but he's reminding them and reminding us of what we have because of God's blessing and that through these exceedingly great and precious promises we may be partakers of the divine nature partakers of the divine Nature. What does that mean? Dwayne Warden, uh, in a commentary, suggests four possibilities here. Perhaps Peter wanted only to observe that to be human is to partake of the divine nature. I suppose that idea would come from how we are created in the image of God. And because we're human, we have that opportunity. A second possibility is that the apostle may have been reminding Christians that when they obeyed the gospel, they were forgiven of their sins and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And thus they became a partner with God, sharing His nature in that sense. A third possibility would be akin to Paul saying that we are to have the mind of Christ, have this attitude or have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And... If this is what it is meant, it means to imbibe the thoughts and behavior of the Lord. To become, to think more and act more like Him. Another, a fourth possibility, is that Peter was speaking about the future. Reminding his readers that when Jesus returns, we'll be reunited with Him in heavenly glory. 
and that we shall be like him, 1 John 3, verse 2, for we shall see him as he is. So which of it, which of these does it refer? Warden says it, it, it is likely that the partaking of the divine nature is akin to the second option. That is, when we became Christians, we were forgiven of our sins and received the gift of the Holy Spirit and thus have become partners with God, sharing his nature. But having, and I'll speak a little bit more to that in just a moment, but having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. When did that happen for Christians? When did we escape the world through the corruption that is in the world through lust? That is when we obeyed the gospel. When we became Christians, we were forgiven. We were, we were, we became part of the called out. We were called out of the world, called to serve Jesus as a way of life. The called out meaning uh, the church. We escape the corruption that, that is in the world by submitting our lives to Jesus. And we will continue to be free of the corruption of the world as we continue to submit our lives to Jesus. How then shall we live? What does God expect from us? Number one, depend upon the blessings that he's given us in Jesus. Depend upon those. Let that be the basis of living the Christian life. Is what God has done for us through Christ. But I want to suggest a second thing from verse 4. And that is keep your objective in mind. Again, thinking of this idea of being partakers of the divine nature. Referring to our conversion to Christ and how we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and we are being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. That's what God wants from his children. That each of us become more and more like Jesus. How does that happen? How We are to become more and more like Jesus, to think and act like him. Coy Roper said it like this, Our great aim is to separate ourselves from the corruption of the world and take upon ourselves the divine nature to which we were called when we became Christians. How does that work? It's a work of God in our lives as Christians. But it requires our cooperation. Notice 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I've told you in the past that when I read this passage... I think about a story, I believe it was Nathaniel Hawthorne, if I'm not mistaken. The great stone face. I hadn't intended, but I, I want to tell you again about that story because I, I think it illustrates beautifully this verse. In this community, in this village, outside this village on, a, on a, the edge of a cliff, there the stone structure of it it just looked like the face of a man. And not just any man, 
But there, were, there, there was a, a, uh, a belief in that community that one day there would come into that community a man whose image matched the great stone face. And it was discussed in this village about the qualities of this man. How he was a good man and a righteous, a noble man. And there was one boy in, in that community, in that village, that would look at that image often and think about the qualities that he had been told were represented by that great stone face. And he began to look for those things in people in his, in his village. Um, I'm not going to be able to remember the names of the different characters. The poet was one of them. But the boy, as he looked at individuals, he could not find in that village anyone whose character matched what he saw in the great stone face. But he just kept observing it and kept trying to emulate those same qualities that were, that were associated with the great stone face. And one day, as, he grew, as this boy grew into a man, someone with a son behind him, I presume, saw this, this uh, shadow, and his, his shadow resembled that great stone face. So everyone believed that that prophecy had come true, that it was that boy that had grown into a man seeking to emulate what he saw in that great stone face. It had come to fruition in his own life. Now watch what Paul says. But we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Beholding, it's not a passing glance. And I suggest we look at Jesus with that kind of beholding. We study him. We want to emulate him. We want to be like him. And so we study him with that intention. We want to know everything about him. And not only that, we want to, we want to be like him. And as that happens, the Spirit of God works in our lives with our full cooperation, and we are transformed into that same image from glory to glory. It's a process that lasts for the rest of our lives, but it is something that God wants to work in our lives with our full cooperation. The Apostle Paul said it like this to the church, to the Christians in Galatia. My little children, for whom I labor in birth. Again, suggesting the intensity of his efforts among these Christians. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again. Until what happens? Until Christ is formed in you. Paul says, I'm going to keep working with you. I'm going to keep teaching you. I'm going to keep setting the right kind of example for you to fix your eyes on Jesus and follow in his steps until Christ is formed in you. Until we see more and more of Jesus in you. If that's our objective then we need to keep beholding him, seeking to emulate him and be transformed in the process of doing so. 
You see, in this passage and in the text, in the verses to come, which Lord willing will discuss next week, I look forward to that, Peter is emphasizing how Christians can keep from falling, keep from falling away. And where he begins, again, is focusing on what God has done for us. He's enabled us to have this faith. He's given us grace and peace, which can be multiplied in our lives through the knowledge that he has given us. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And he's given us these precious promises that we can stand upon as the foundation of our spiritual lives. So begin with the foundation, but keep that objective in mind. That what God wants to see ultimately in each of us is that we become more and more like Jesus. We get the distinct impression we can't do this by ourselves. We need God's help. We can't be saved without God's help. We can't be saved without Jesus dying on the cross for us. And we must surrender our lives in obedience to his will. Even our becoming more and more like Jesus, we can't do it ourselves. It it requires God's help. And it requires God's mercy, doesn't it? Because we're going to miss the mark. We're going to mess up. And we need God's mercy to forgive us and his strength to help us. So that's where we'll begin by relying and depending on what God has provided for us in Jesus. And those blessings can be shared by all of us if we'll just accept them in obedience to his will. It may be tonight that you're ready to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, or it may be that tonight you desire for us to use one of our greatest privileges to pray to God on on behalf of one another. If you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, please come right now as we stand and sing.